This is Soccer Pilgrim, the podcast dedicated to soccer and travel, where each stadium is shrine and its fans delay people. For the traveler, it is another culture to explore. Welcome to the Soccer Pilgrim podcast with Jason Kim. Hey everyone, welcome back to Soccer Pilgrim. I'm your host, Jason Kim. And today's episode will be a little different. The past season, I was talking about the Euros and different venues at the Euros and the matches that were occurring at on all those venues. And today, I decided to talk about something a little different, shift gears a little bit. I mean, it's obviously still soccer related. But this one has me thinking about the fan or fan culture. And in particular, there's an article that my friend Carabelle, the guy who helps me with this podcast... He sent me this article that he thought I should read, and I read it, and I thought it was a very well-written article, kind of cool to read, and it's called, uh, Why Do Hardcore Football Fans Behave Like Reading Stags? It's kind of funny. Um, And this article was written by Martha Newson, and I'm just going to read that little thing that's on this article. Uh, Martha Newson is a cognitive anthropologist. She is a future leaders fellow at the School of Anthropology and Conservation at the University of Kent. Good school and a research associate at the Center for the Study of Social Cohesion at the University of Oxford. So she studies social cohesion at the University of Oxford. So she saw, like, not just anthropologists, but sociologists, well, mostly anthropologists, really. And it's always a lot of fun when you apply some of these academic backgrounds onto sports, like anthropology, sociology, or even religion. When you apply to sports like soccer, it, it's fascinating. It's it, you You start peeling back the layers and you start to learn more more about human behavior and thinking as opposed to the soccer itself and how soccer becomes sort of that venue or that space for these psychologies, if you will, to take place and to express themselves, you know? Obviously, as football is a working-class sports, there's a lot of people who have their own anxieties, their own problems, and their own, I guess, everyday bullshit that they go through, and football is a way for them to express that and let that go, you know? And uh, so for this episode, I'll be reading the article by Martha Newsom at this on on the website called Psyche P S Y C H E dot C O. And if you just Google Psyche dot C O, why do hardcore football fans behave like running stags, rutting stags? It's kind of funny because when you do go to sports games and when you do go to soccer games in particular, the men masculinities are at play and they all kind of flare up and everyone gets a little aggressive everyone talks smack and everyone's sort of fitting for a fight at times and and a lot of people ask why and is it because we're just surrounded by these super hyper masculine environment by other dudes who are giving off this uh, this uh <laughs> not estrogen this uh, testosterone pheromone in, into the air and it's triggering everyone to get you know all act up maybe i don't know i mean Sports has a way to make you passionate and violent at the same time. So let's start by reading the first paragraph. I'm not going to read the entire article. I'm going to read bits of the article where I thought is maybe important uh, for us to understand what this article is about by Martha Newson. So the first art, first paragraph or the first section. At my first match in South London, Viking-like war chants from the nearby football fans and those supporting the opposing team echo from one end to the stadium and back again, sometimes accompanied by drums, sometimes by several thousand solemn claps, forcing the hairs on the back of my neck to stand on the end, primed, primed for potential danger. 
yeah, I mean, all that noise and and all that noise and and hostility definitely gets you in a certain mindset. The camaraderie invoked by these mass inc- incantations can bridge general gaps or generational gaps, rather. Ethnic divides and language barriers. Oh, let's read that sentence again. I, I didn't like the way I read that. Okay, so the camaraderie invoked by these mass incantations can bridge generational gaps, ethnic divides, and language barriers. It's something I find irresistible and contagious. Um, I feel the same way. It offers acceptance. But at the far side of the soccer stadium, a group of young men and gesticulating <laughs> widely at the subset of the fans in my stand. They made death threats, imitating a knife, slitting a throat, or hangman's noose. I find that my eyes are trained on them, alert to the risk they may they might pose. Even with a football pitch between us, I'm told that someone threw a brick from the top of the stand down to a group of rival fans a few weeks ago. Oh my god. Okay, so then she goes on to say that from this experience of uh, attending a football match and the violence and the, the tension and the and the air of the stadium pretty much led her to do research on this. And she goes on to talk about hooliganism and how about football, fi- football violence is quite common and these things often happen. Uh, this is where she gets her title. Football fans can be likened to rutting stags, rutting stags. Redding, rutting. Anyway, basically stags and heat, male stags and heat. Then that are always kind of uh, fighting each other over over women or over women over the female uh, deer. And that much of their hostility and cajoling is ritualistic. The to and fro around the stadia and the local streets and pubs on a match day demonstrates this nicely. Fans tend to stick to streets or pubs they know. Uh, they know they're welcome in or. Or are made to stay in by police for high-risk matches. Shouting and throwing objects often happens as two groups walk away from one another. And group members nearly always step up to pull one, one another back. The idea is that fans understand the rules enough to let off steam safely. However, sometimes these ritual boundaries in all their su- subtlety can collapse. So basically, in this part, in this uh, paragraph, she's saying that most fans actually try to... Sp- stay away from the violence they're not trying to you know fight they're just there to watch games and maybe banter against the rivaling fans and most fans have the street smarts where they understand that okay you don't you avoid this street don't go here don't go there don't go to this pub don't go to that pub if you know if you're not looking for a fight sometimes the cops would tell them hey these fans or this is a very big game like liverpool manchester united uh the police would say okay you know what you guys stay here you're not allowed to go there and then the cops will like kind of control everything so they There'll be no like hooliganism and no big fights. The sheer size of the fan base means that even if violent fans are a tiny minority, their violence still presents a sizable problem. Research suggests that football violence is not predicated on race or, or ethnicity. Despite the racist chanting that still plagues the game, nor is, nor is it related to what psychologists call social maladjustment. Aside from being a man, the biggest predictor of violence more generally, what lies at the heart of the name-calling, bottle-throwing... Oh, that's, she's asking a question. What lies at the heart of the name-calling, bottle-throwing, and physical fighting? So that's the question she's asking. That soccer, for the most part, bridges gaps. You know, people of different races and religions can all kind of come together and enjoy the game together. And soccer as a, as a, as a social tool 
sometimes in her words, what it seems, though this is only the first few paragraphs, but in her words, it seems that it's a really good social agent to bring people together. People come together for soccer games and they have a good time most of the time. But it, but what she's saying here is that because fights and violence is always is quite common and can always happen at football matches, she was saying that that probability could perhaps be a domino effect. And also because the you know, fan size is so big. I mean, think about it. You're in a stadium with 60,000 fans and one of them is ready to pop off. So over the eight years that I've researched football fandom in Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Australia, fans have told me football binds us all together like nothing else. When they were young, they felt they felt like a part of a tribe. The animal came pouring out every Saturday. All you wanted, needed to do was act like an animal and fight any other tribe that came into your area. I began to suspect that identity fusion, an extreme and enduring form of social bonding, held the answer to the toxic flip. For the fused fans, the fantastical contest of football becomes an irrevocable part of their identity. Okay, she used fuses a lot in this article, and we're going to read more of it. And I think what she means by fused fans is... Oh, actually, she explains it right next. Okay, so identity fusion is the oneness we feel with the people that help make you your family. For instance, this intense form of bonding leads to extraordinary pro-group behaviors. We see in it, we see it in people so fused to their nation that they promptly give blood following a terrorist attack, or among military insurgents so closely bonded to their comrades that they'll risk it all on the front line. When I began this research, some naysayers doubted that fusion would even exist for a social target as arbitrary, and she puts that in quotation marks, arbitrary as football. I wondered if these critics had ever witnessed live football in Europe or Latin America. These critics have never been to a live game in any organized sports, period. I don't, I, the naysayers who say that are kind of, I, where do you live? <laughs> I'm not saying this as someone as a sports fan, but it's, I think that's obvious. You just go on YouTube and you look up sports fans of any sports and there will always be fight. There will always be fights. As you know, as someone from Montreal watching Canadians fans, I'm very well aware that the rest of Canada does not like the Canadi- the fans of the Montreal Canadiens. They find us annoying. The same way as the rest of America find every Boston fan annoying. And it's kind of like Montreal and Boston kind of are together, united in this old school teams with a lot of history, but the fan base are somewhat unbearable. <laughs> I mean, that's the argument. Boston Boston fans will say New York fans are unbearable, and Montreal fans will say Toronto fans are unbearable. But you see what I just did there? That's what she calls fusion. I identified with Montreal, and if I was, I guess, more down, and if I was more of a, of a Canadians fan, I would fight any Maple Leafs fan or Boston fan. Now, to me, it would be like part of my thing is that my identity has become one with an external thing, that being the Montreal Canadiens, as an example. So if you use soccer as an example, someone who is a, let's say you're from, let's say you're a newly arrived immigrant to London and you're from Jamaica and, and you live in North London and then you end up becoming an Arsenal fan. So your family is Jamaican and has no real connection to this part of North London where Arsenal's playing, but you being the guy or girl who grew up in this area neighborhood your identity becomes attached to Arsenal. Yes, you might have some attachment to your Jamaican identity, but that's more of a family connection at that point. And the family is also connected to the cultural thing. But then you also kind of, perhaps you need something else to fill in a void that family and culture doesn't always fill in. And sports gives you a sense of 
your family will always be a part of you. Your family will always be your core tribe, but you need something greater. You need something bigger. Some people join gangs. Some people join uh, nonprofit organizations. Other other people join the radical groups. Others join a religious group that is not radicalized. And in this case, in a secular example, some people join clubs. Like I'm a member of Club de Fut Club de Foot Montréal. I bought season tickets and I'm officially a member of that club. Is uh, if I was a hardcore fan, my identity would be fused with CF Montréal and fighting for them on the streets versus let's say a TFC fan to me it would be like yes that is a duty. I I don't feel that way, but let's say I grew up in a I grew up in an environment or yeah, I grew up in an environment where I didn't really have anywhere to belong where I felt alone. I didn't really have a tribe of my own. I didn't have my own home outside of my real home. You know, for me, church was that, but for me, church used to be that, but more importantly, soccer, my soccer team, my soccer teammates really became that for me in some sense. You know, I love playing with those guys. I look forward to playing with those guys. Even when we lose, I'd rather lose with them than with anyone else because at least I know with this team that I play with, when we lose, we'll build back, we'll learn, and then we'll pivot. And yeah, so she in here, uh, Newsen is trying to say is that just like patriotism, some people are just fused deeply to their club as opposed to their country, you know, as opposed to joining the army and fighting for your country. They're sort of, you know, they're participating in football matches to watch it and then go fight someone afterwards. <laughs> it's like it's 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 the same. It's a same if not it's a similar if not same parallel. All right, let's continue reading. Pro-group commitment is rife in fan culture. Fans travel huge distances for away game, invest time and money participating in their team's events, and often display visual symbols of allegiance to their team, including lifelong and painful tattoos. That is very British. That's very... T- okay, she, she, I, I think this is... may not just British. I mean, I, I, I've seen a lot of Argentinian fans do something similar. Uh, in this case... In this case, yeah, the the away things is a very soccer thing. There's a good documentary on 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 YouTube, either by the Guardian or BBC. I forget which one. They're following Newcastle away fans. Newcastle is in the north of England, and it's about an hour or two hours from the Scottish border, so it's not that far. To get from Newcastle to London, or it's from Newcastle to uh, Southampton, which is the very south of uh, England, by bus it'll take you six hours. By train, maybe a similar time, if not more. So people dedicate, people wake up at four, five, six o'clock in the morning, get on the bus and they drive down and they do that every weekend or every other weekend when their game, when their team is playing away. You don't see that in North America because North America is way too big, but just think about it. That's something that people are doing on a regular basis. It's, it's really impressive. A lot of, a lot of investment. I mean, also to get tatted up with your, you know, with your club symbol. I mean, that's more money investing. Let's continue reading. In surveys with more than 700 British football fans, I discovered that one diehard fan had tattooed the club insignia on his testicles and that for some fans, when push came to shove, the club came before their own children. My God. So heavily invested are some fans that match results have even been associated with spikes and heart attacks. (laughs) Okay, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just like this is how much football means to people. 
Football matches can generate a sense of belonging so deep that an individual's bond to their club and fellow fans is permanent. Unlike typical crowd identities, where one's sense of self dissolves and is, and is anonymized, fused people still recognize individual uniqueness. This is probably what makes it so powerful. Fused fans are personally invested. Take the fan who told me that when he saw his favorite player get injured, he felt sad. Remorse like it was my brother. I really wept bitterly. This sense of kinship appears to be appears between fans too, and is a key reason behind the more violent behaviors. Fused fans are laying down their lives for what they perceive to be their brothers in arms. Yeah, uh, man. Wow. Tattooed, <laughs> tattooed his club insignia, his club logo on his testicles. That's. Why? Why? <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's wild. You see, this is hardcore stuff. Imagine, ah, oh, no, you don't need to imagine. That's just crazy. Um, okay, I'm gonna read this in the next part too. <clears throat> football, football casuals or ultras, cultures of hardcore football fans often have their own unique style and don't wear their team's colors at all. The strip is effectively internalized obviating the need to display it because bonded fans are ready to go down with the sh- uh, with the ship they're resilient to negative team outcomes in fact bitter defeats only bond them more tightly together the club i support isn't about winning it's about being in the shit together said one fan another fan said his club caused more lows than highs oh as a millwall fan but it is that unexpected element which is it which is like a drug interesting so, so yeah it's it's this is such a different mentality from North America. North America, we want to be part of the winning team, the winning team, the winning team. And then once you've decided on the winning team that you like, you stick with them. You you don't move. I mean, that's the that's really because the North American fans is far more optimistic minded as opposed to pessimistic minded. Whereas the UK, they're far more pessimistic minded than they are optimistic. That when the optimism does come in you see them go crazy. I mean, look at the Euros, how the English fans uh, reacted. They were so confident and they were so happy. And despite the negativity and the racism that was that was targeted towards the black players of in on England, which is, you know, it's fucking annoying, heartbreaking, infuriating. I wanted, I want, I was looking for the positivity out of that. And out of one racist comment, there was a thousand positive comments that came in and that's what i like to see is that this a new generation of english fans are happy they were like despite not winning the silver lining is that you made us dream again you made us feel good again you made us believe in the three lines again you made us believe that this english team can make it to the next level that we could win and i think that has a lot again this is where the fused idea comes in that a lot of those english fans it wasn't so much about football anymore it was about reaffirming the positivities within England. Let me find a better word. I guess is to get away from the anxieties and the troubles that most English people are going through today. To make to give them a sense of uh, optimism for the future. That you know what, being English isn't so bad. Being a part of England isn't so bad. Look what we've done through football. We made it so far. People came together. People rallied together. There was a sense of community that unified England. And it seemed like, especially in a place like England. Every city just feels like a different country and doing, they're doing their own thing and everyone seems to be kind of fractal. But this Euros, it seemed to have bind and connected the entire country together. So that's a good thing to see. And if you want to take it at a club level, 
I mean, with this case with casuals or ultras, I didn't. I never thought. I never seen it this way. I never seen it described this way. Where it was more about being the shit together. It's more about struggling together than winning together. Which is <laughs> funny. It's kind of funny because you want to be winning as opposed to struggling, right? So maybe it's just a different concept. But this one fan, what he says that whenever we do win, it just feels that much better. It's almost like a high stakes poker. If if you lose, you lose big, but at least you had fun and you had the thrill of understanding that you could have won bigger. Maybe it's the same thing. Who knows? And here's another fun fact that she doesn't bring this up, but like the history of casuals or ultras, though you know the super violent ones, they usually wear all black when you when you go when you go to games. For for example, Toronto FC, the inebriati, they're the ultras. They tend to wear all black mostly, and they're the ones that's always down for a scrap. And but not just in TFC, like in most clubs, uh, most football clubs around the world, th- those who tell who don't wear the club colors but are supporting that club uh, are the ones you should probably be avoiding because they're the ones that are down for a fight. And in England, the story goes: a lot of football casuals in England would always wear Stone Island stuff and Kappa gear and all those things, like those really, I guess, expensive and nice uh, sports designer brands or whatnot. And the reason why was that for Champions Leagues, when the casuals, the English casuals, let's say Manchester United fans, when Manchester United fans would go play in Paris against PSG or against Lyon or whoever, they go whenever they go to Europe, continental Europe, they found that it was easier to rob the stores. Because um, in England, they had all of this, uh, I guess, security that it's, that'll be harder to steal from stuff. Uh, you know, like metal detectors or whatever, or, you know, like we have in all stores now. But back in those days in the 80s, a lot of those European stores in, in Spain, Italy, and France, they didn't really have those things. So a lot of these uh, casuals in, gr- in large groups will just storm these, will storm these designer brand stores, take all the Stone Island jackets, take all whatever, and just go back to England with them. So they'd always come back to England with, like, nice Adidas shoes, uh... Kappa sweatpants, Stone Island jackets. That sounds like a horrible mismatch of fashion, but you know, like that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of what they were doing. And I, I remember hearing saying that whenever you see an ultra wearing a Stone Island jacket, you must avoid. That I remember I remember someone telling me that like you gotta avoid the the ultra with a Stone Island jacket without the Stone Island patch, avoid that guy because he's probably like carrying a knife or something. Supposedly. Let's continue reading though. Uh <laughs> Okay, so yada, yada, yada. She was talking about the trouble starts when Fuse fans, for whom the group's best interest comes first, turn their pro-social behavior to less desirable outcomes. The football fights, mass brawls, the ugly brutality that's hung over the game for decades. For Fuse fans, football violence is not necessarily mindless, as polite societies tend to think. Conflicts between Fuse fans is usually targeted specifically toward threatening rivals. Yeah, okay. Um, I mean, that's a self-explanatory. So the Fused fans, what she was saying is, it's a category of fan who is super down and super connected to their club, but their capacity of violence has increased as a result because they're so patriotic about the club they support that they will maybe become an ultra or, yeah, they might become an ultra or they might become, you know, a very invested fan who's not down for fights. It's one or the other, it seems. But the point is, is that their identity is fused with with the club, with the club identity. All right, let's keep, let's keep reading. 
When a group is threatened, fused fans whose personal social selves are entirely merged perceive this as an attack on their very self. This is key. And I will go to extreme lengths and will go to extreme lengths to protect and defend the group. The sometimes terrifying results are amplified with intoxicants, traditionally alcohol, but increasingly with cocaine. Oh my god, that's scary. Fans getting up at 5 a.m. to travel to an away game often starts with the business of group intoxication on the away bus. Oh my god. <laughs> While alcohol renders football lads, in quotation, relatively incompetent by late afternoon, <laughs> ego-inflating cocaine keeps them active and focused well into the night. Oh, that's true. Fused fans who report using cocaine are the most aggressive to the rivals. Of course course i'm not surprised about that if i never done cocaine but i know people who have and they have all told me the same thing it's an upper i mean i think popular media has depicted that quite well that cocaine is an upper a rich man's drug and people who take a lot of cocaine often do it with a lot of alcohol alcohol is a downer but cocaine kind of brings you back up so i'm not surprised especially if they're english fans that they get on the bus at 5 a.m and let's say it's a six or seven hour travel time what are you going to do for that long oh let's just drink pass the time and then by the time we get to the game they might not be all there they might be tired they might be really about to pass out and cocaine fixes that brings them back up they're focused not necessarily sober they're not sober at all they're focused and also she bring and she was also uh, emphasizing the fact that because your identity is fused with the club is an attack on the club is an attack on yourself. So if you're a patriot, if you're patriotic, 9/11 was not just an attack on your city nor just an attack on two buildings, it was an attack as you as an American, so you want to fight back and perhaps join the army do what you need what you feel like had to be done. So she, now she gets into identities, and there's one part I wanted to read. So she says how, you know, if you're part of a club, it's easy to identify other people who are the same fan as you or as a fan of the same club as you. It's easy to identify whether it's through their tattoos or the way they dress or just through conversation. But this is where she says that uh, once you're talking about, let's say, when you go abroad, especially when you are going abroad to watch your national team play, let's say to watch England play as opposed to watching Arsenal play. Then there are other fans of for, of your national team with whom you gather in your millions every few years. Imbued with the history and the heat of your national identity, you recognize one another when you're abroad. If you're an ultra or football hooligan, you might even recognize another ultra walking and you might even recognize another ultra walking along the beach in the swim trunks. I'm told it's not the tattoos or the haircut that give it away. It's the gait. The way they hold themselves. Hardcore fans use body language to recognize other fans who, like them, pose the highest risk. As these fans' identities effectively never switch off. Those cultural traits are paraded wherever they go. Huh. So they, being a, a hooligan or being an ultra, is an identity that doesn't require superficial layer as in tattoos and clothing or haircut in this case they just know each other by just by the way they walk in the same way as uh, you can always tell someone who's been in the army just their physical demeanor you know uh like bigger they just walk with confidence they bigger they just got this bigger i, I there's no other i don't know how to how else to explain it there's just like a bigger vibe to them you know 
that they can handle themselves. The, you get that vibe from these people, not just from soldiers and ultras, but you get that from criminals as well. That you get a sense like this guy can hang with himself. Don't don't mess around. Ultimately, as football fan, you recognize the degree of affinity with all other football fans. Period. They know the score, literally. Whatever the club, they know how it feels to travel on a bus for hours to watch a club they love get thrashed in the pouring rain. <laughs> wow, sounds horrible. Okay, no wonder the British are so pessimistic. They know the sweet taste of beating a local rival, the stench of sweat cutting through the split, uh, the spilt lager in the pub when the last-minute goal is scored. Oh, what a great feeling. Football is, as any fan will tell you, a global force to be reckoned with. Football-related violence is a planet-wide problem, with death rates rising from Brazil to Indonesia. Apparently, Indonesia is considered one of the most dangerous football leagues in the world now that's something to that's something that we need to discover on this podcast in the uk scenes of naked violence the physical clashes and their bloody results once dubbed the english disease have largely moved underground following decades of heavy sanctions including international bans for both fans and clubs nowadays risk fans those who are down the fight identified by the police as continuous troublemakers or who are connected to football firms or gangs. These football firms or gangs might meet for a pre-arranged spat in the middle of the night at a service station, rather than take up a whole of a busy street in the town center for a scheduled punch-up. Scheduled punch-up. <laughs> However, spontaneous clashes between fans still erupt. Despite heavy CCTV and the police presence at all high-profile games, the Metropolitan Police in London alone spends more than four million pounds a year on policing Premier League football games. That's a, that's London alone. Very little of which is recovered from London's wealthy clubs. Despite this, the UK is generally considered a success story. It's true. When I went to London to watch a West Ham game, West Ham, that's East London. So that's a, a working class part of town. I felt safe. The majority of the time I felt safe. I did see a fight. At outside the stadium but it wasn't so bad it was like it it was a fight like i've seen anywhere else in montreal when it comes to hockey it, it looked the same it was just people talking smack drunk and then um yeah and then they just handled their business i guess <laughs> but there wasn't like crazy it was just more like pushing and shoving and talking shit and then it was each other it was like the friends of those two guys splitting each other up so they're self-policing and the reason why UK is considered a success story, I mean, they pass all these laws and, uh, and uh, a legislation to deal with football hooliganism because it was creating so much uh, property damage that, you know, it was getting out of hand. Innocent people were getting hurt, if not killed. So it was pretty bad. And now, now they've done a good job of preventing those fights. For example, for if you're the away team, the away team, if you're a fan of the away team, you'll have your own section of the stadium that's only people of the away team that'll have that'll be seated in the section. But when the game ends, the away fans will have their own exit and own entrance. They have their own bathrooms. They have their own little spot within the stadium to separate from everyone else or to minimize interaction with the home fans. But when the game ends, the home fans, they leave at the stadium first. They they exit the stadium first. And the away fans have to stay in the stadium until the entire stadium has been emptied of home fans. And once the home... You might be thinking, well, the fans will just be waiting for them outside the stadium. And maybe we'll just jump them as they come out. That doesn't happen either. Because the police push them away from the stadium grounds to make sure no one fights. If, let's say, Liverpool is hosting Manchester United... The Liverpool fans will be will be the ones leaving the stadium first, and then they'll be 
gently pushed away from the stadium that once that's done the Manchester United away fans will exit the stadium get into their bus and then they'll leave and then you know it's to minimize any fights and it, it turns out to be working I remember also to be in a first time I went to a Montreal Impact game I was sitting I was seated in a Toronto the Toronto section I was seated with TFC fans horrible experience <laughs> but uh, you know it was free tickets so i'm not gonna say no and uh we went to the game still a fun game still a great experience but i was overhearing the tfc fans complaining saying like oh they got us they got us uh cornered here do we have only one inches one exit they're just complaining that you know that they were put in a corner and that they uh and that they felt like caged animals they're all upset oh this is so stupid and then they were blaming Montreal, like, oh, this is what Montreal does in Toronto. But I remember just thinking, I was like, dude, this is just a soccer thing. That's what you do in Europe. And then I realized that most soccer fans in Canada are still learning about the game. In Toronto, they're still learning about the game. And a lot of fans in Montreal are still learning about the game. It just is what it is. I remember him hearing him complaining. I'm like, oh, you're just such a bitch. Who cares? You know, like, it's not a big deal, bro. It's not like you're in an actual cage. Like, come on. Anyway, it's it, of course he was white. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm going to read the last paragraph. As humans, we shift through layers of identity easily, selecting those appropriate to a given context. So on match day, we root for our club. At work, we meet someone who's into football and there's a connection. But for the fused fans, the football identity never switches off. Football is where all their attention lies when it kicks off and it and kickoff, it does. So I asked myself, am I a fused fan of any club? And yeah, I, I guess in a lot of ways, I'm very much connected to Club de Foot Montréal, CF Montréal. Like, I grew up being around Madrid and Liverpool fan. I love those two clubs. But th- as I grow older, I realize I don't really have that much in common with those two teams. I've watched games at the... San- I've watched one game at the Santiago Bernabeu, and... I didn't feel like I belonged there, you know? Like, as a Real Madrid fan, as someone who's watched Real Madrid ever since I was a kid, to, as in, to an adult, I, I never felt like, oh, I should be here. I was happy. I was, I mean, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. But once you go to Real Madrid fan, you realize how international this club is. The I wouldn't say the majority of fans, but a good chunk of the fans were not from Spain. And that kind of made me feel good not bad i didn't i didn't feel like i got scammed or anything but it made me feel good because i felt like this is a this club is marketing towards a someone like me and that made me feel comfortable to know that there are other people like me who are coming to this game who spent a lot of money and who've dreamt to go watch real madrid live at the santiago bernabeu and it was great to have to share that experience with other fans i didn't know but i was also sitting with a lot of local fans who are spanish who are from madrid and Sitting with them, I'm almost reminded that this club is more for them than it is for me. I'm the money maker. International fans is what brings money to Real Madrid, but these local fans are what is is what Real Madrid is about. Is that these are high standard local fans that that talk a lot of smack, but they have very strong opinions and very high standards of of how Real Madrid ought to be playing. And their connection to the club is much deeper than mine. That I only begin to understand. Same with Liverpool. I love Liverpool because I love their story. I love that you'll never walk alone. I love the the poetry that surrounds this club. It reminds me a lot of what what the Boston Red Sox are like or what the Montreal Canadiens are like within their respective leagues and, and sports. And I love those stories that they don't win all the time. But they're such a, a classic franchise that you have to respect it. 
but even with Liverpool, I I never been to a Liverpool game at Anfield. I've been to a Liverpool game in in the States when they were traveling. But the more I think about it, I I still love Liverpool. It's still a great club, but I realize I don't have that much in common or that much connection with Liverpool. What makes Liverpool special is that the local fans make it special and they give you a vibe of what this is what Liverpool is about, the city. Even with Everton fans, they tell you this is what the city's about and they always tell you what Liverpool is about and how different it is and distinct it is from the rest of England. I find that kind of cool, but I don't really understand that. I'm not from there. I don't connect with that. But with Club de Foot Montréal, I have more connection with that because it's my local team. I mean, I'm from Montreal. I grew up watching the Canadians and every fan at CF Montréal all grew up watching the Canadians and we're all just soccer fans that only had the Canadians to watch and at the time the impact wasn't as attractive to watch if I'm being honest when they were in the NASL or whatever other league it was but once they joined the MLS it became more interesting so you have hardcore fans who've been watching them before MLS days who would say that they are the absolute most fused fans of Montreal and I agree with that I'm a relatively new fan of Montreal. I only started watching them the last five years. I think since Drugba came to Montreal, that's when I really started watching uh, The Impact, or now Club de Fut Montréal. So am I a Fuse fan? Yeah, I guess in some extent. Am I going to fight? Perhaps not. I probably won't. But then again, I've seen... I, I've, never been, I've never been to a Montreal game at Toronto at BMO Field as the away fan. I feel like maybe my experience and opinions might shift, but I'm not there to fight. I'm there to have a good time. If you're an academic, this article would be good as like a, a theoretical premise. You know, when you write academic articles, you need a theory and a methodology and then the subject. And that those two things, the theory tells you, the theory tells you basically what you think is happening. You're going to use this equation to say that because of this equation, this is what's happening here. And a mythology is how you're going to go through that. Um, and in this case, the theory is fused, fusion. And she she's applying the fusion theory onto soccer. And she was saying, you see, these people are being fused. Their identity is being fused with an external identity being their local club. And they are exe- they're exemplifying same behaviors as a patriotic American did on, on 9-11. I mean, she says that right at the top. So that being said, this is a really good article. Uh, I really enjoyed it. This is uh, something worth reading. I think it gives you a good insight as to how football fans think. If you always ask, why do these guys always get into fights at soccer games? This article does a really good job at explaining it. They just, they are one with the club and they are down for whatever. And in a lot of ways, it's like, it's 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 about tribe. It's about uh, a sense of belonging. We're all social animals. We want a sense of belonging. If we can't find that online, we'll go somewhere physical in person. And a lot of these people is sports. And the thing about football in England, not only is it a, a tribe for anyone to join, but it's part of the culture. It's part of English culture to be a football fan. I mean, not all English people are football fans, of course, but it almost seems like it was predisposed for it to happen. So anyway, you can find this article at Psyche.co. Why do hardcore football fans behave like Reading Stags? I think a great article by Martha Newson. I recommend you all read it, share it, whatever. And yeah, I think this is it for today's episode. I 
if you like what if you like this episode, I could do more of these or writing, you know, reading articles and then reacting towards it or just reacting towards anything. That's always fun. So yeah, so for right now, for this podcast itself, I don't really have any seasons plans, but I'll be doing more and more single episodes like these on whatever topics I find and whatever topics I want to talk about. So once again, thank you for tuning in and being an audience. You can always follow. So once again, thank you for being an audience and tuning in. I changed my Instagram. My personal Instagram was Jason underscore Jisoo, but I changed that to the soccer pilgrim. So you can follow my personal account, my personal Instagram account at the soccer pilgrim. And if you want to follow the the podcast Instagram account, it's just soccer pilgrim without the V at the beginning. So that being said, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being an audience. And from Montreal, my name is Jason Kim. This is Soccer Pilgrim. Thank you. Thank you.